listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right, you can have a seat. Welcome again to another gathering of Community Bible Church. We're thankful that you're here with us. Whatever brought you here this morning, whether it's your first time or you're here with us every single week, we're grateful that you're here. My name is Clint, I'm one of the guys on staff and I look forward to the time we have together this morning. If you have a Bible, we turn to Colossians chapter one. If you don't have one, there should be some around you and some seatbacks. The text that we're gonna read is also gonna be on the screen. We're gonna get there in a minute. Um, as Bill mentioned before, we're, we're kind of shifting our series around a little bit and that'll make more sense here in a moment. Let me tell you a story first. My wife and I love this time of year. Um, she likes to, uh, has a tendency uh, to maybe turn the air conditioner on so she can get the fireplace going. You know what I mean? Like as soon as falls in the air, then we're going all in on those things. Luckily, and by God's grace to us, we have resisted up to this point, but I think now it's time, right? Um, I'm still waiting for that first under 70 degree morning for us to have our coffee outside. That hasn't happened yet. I had to swim to church. It was so humid this morning. Um, but nevertheless, it's fall. Another reason why we love fall is because it's football season, right? Anybody else? So, yeah, get an applause for that. I can be like, Jesus is Lord, and be like, mm-hmm. And then if you say, football season's here, we get an applause. But um, my wife and I have two little boys. Our oldest is four, or almost four, rather. I just lied to you. He's almost four. And so he is a sponge. He's soaking things up, which means that we have the opportunity this fall to teach him about the beauty of college football and specifically teach him about the beauty of the Georgia Bulldogs, right? That's what I'm talking about. That's the easy amen that I need right there to keep us going this morning. Um, before you get bent out of shape, I want you to know this. For those of you who are not big football fans, we are not going to teach him at least try to teach him to worship college football, we're gonna teach him to enjoy it as the good gift that it is from God, okay? So not to worship it before you get been out of shape and start drafting an email right now about how I'm creating an idol in my son's heart. Hopefully we're not doing that, okay? Anyways, last week was the first game of the season. We played Vanderbilt. So we're getting him excited about the game. The game started at like eight o'clock, which is after his bedtime, so he barely got to watch any of it. But we're getting him excited about it, trying to get him fired up about it. He loves music, and so my wife starts playing the Georgia Bulldog fight song, right? So she's playing, literally, this was her idea. She turns it on, Alexa, it's playing, he's dancing around, singing the song, learning the words to it. It's a pretty simple song. I'm a parable singer, so I'll just read it for you. Glory, glory to old Georgia. Glory, glory to old Georgia. Glory, glory to old Georgia and to heck with, right, because we're not animals, we're not gonna teach them the real word, to heck with whoever we're playing, right? Which last week, was Vanderbilt, okay? So we're teaching him the song, he's dancing around, he's singing it, okay? I promise this story has a point, okay? Stay with me. This past week, we went to stay with my in-laws for the evacuation, and um, we were at lunch with my, my family, so my two little boys and me. This guy comes in, has a Georgia football shirt on. I'm not sure how it evolved to this point, but here, all of a sudden, we're singing the fight song at lunch, okay? So the way that we try to teach him, indoctrinate him into things, is to start singing it and then stop and let him finish it, right? So glory, glory to old, and he goes, Georgia, glory, glory to old, Georgia. We get to the point, and to heck with, and I point to him, I kid you not, and to heck with, he goes, Pastor Bill. <laughs> I promise you, I am not making this up. So if I get fired this week, you know why, okay? <laughs> um, 
And then so we die, just like you did. We're dying laughing, because I, I mean, it was just like, what just happened, okay? How did he get that? And then we do some, you know, some investigative work, we realized he, he thought when we were singing to heck with Vanderbilt, <laughs> that we were saying to heck with Pastor Bill. <laughs> and so he's confused, right? He's like, why are you laughing? Like, I got it right. I know the song, Dad. Why are you laughing? Um, so here's the point. <laughs> That's ridiculous. In a similar way, okay, in a similar way, I think that we can do this, where we assume that we understand what something means, and then we get confused and we wonder why it's not working, right? We wonder why it feels like the world's laughing at us, so to speak. So our plan for this Sunday was to finish chapter one of Colossians, and Bill was going to preach, but instead, what we're going to do is slow down and, and deep dive into something that we covered a few weeks ago that I think we have a tendency to misunderstand. So this will be on the screen, Colossians 1, verse 9 and 10. So Paul's praying for the church at Colossae. He says, so from the day we've heard, we've heard of your faith in Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. He says, and so from the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he says this, where I want to spend our time, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So here's where I want to stop, because this is a crazy thought, right? Paul just said that there is a way for us to live our lives that is fully pleasing to God. That's a crazy thought, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, which on one hand is awesome, that we can live in such a way that God, the creator God of the universe, would be entirely, completely, fully pleased in us. That's amazing. But on the other hand, and I'm sure this is where many of your minds and hearts have gone, if there's a way for us to live that's pleasing to him, then there must be a way for us to live that's not. Right? And that's where our minds tend to go. If there's a way for us to live that way, there must be a way for us to not live that way, we feel more often than not like God isn't pleased in us, that God is disappointed in us, like we've let him down. And I think the reason why is because we assume we know what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We assume we get it right, when in reality, I think we're singing the wrong lyric. And we're confused why things aren't working out the way that we think they should. And so what do we get wrong about this? Paul prays the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. This word walk, it just means to live, but it's also a more encompassing idea. It's not just the things you do, it's also what motivates you to do the things you do. So it's your feelings and your thoughts and your desires as well as your actions. And Paul says, I pray that all of that for you would be worthy of the Lord, that it would be fully pleasing to him. And Bill used this illustration a few weeks ago when he taught this. He said, it's like this old school scale, right? Kind of the, the back and forth thing, and you want to balance it. And on one side, what Paul is saying is that this is all we've been given in Jesus. On one side of the scale is this idea that we've been talking about a lot, that we are positionally in Christ, meaning when God looks at us, he doesn't see our failures or our imperfections, he sees Jesus, that's what's on one side of the scale. He sees, when he looks at us, the perfect righteousness of Christ that counts for us even though we don't deserve it. This is what is on one side of the scale, all we have in Jesus. And when Paul says, you should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, what he's saying is, go balance the scale. Go even the thing out, right? 
But what we can't afford to miss in that is that we didn't do anything to earn what's on this side over here. That we are positionally in Jesus, not because of anything we've done, but completely because of the mercy and the grace of our God, which means that in Christ, if we are positionally in Jesus, in Christ, on your best day and on your worst day, God is not disappointed in you. That's what that means. It means he will never turn away from you or turn you away from him. It means that he not only loves you, but he also likes you. And then here's where this gets confusing. Paul says, since this is true about you, since God is pleased in you, since he loves you, since he has forever placed his delight on you, now go live in a way that is pleasing to him. That's confusing. He says, go balance the scales. Why would he say that? So here's the short answer. In God's goodness and his kindness and his mercy to us, he has invited us, invited you in to play a part in the work that he's doing in the world. He's invited us in. Here's how. Since the beginning, God has been displaying to the world his character and his nature through a people who he has set apart. So if you read the creation narrative, you see that in all of humanity, in every single human being on the face of the earth, we have been given the image of God. But in a specific, in a unique way, God has set apart a group of people to display his character and his nature to the world. And originally that was a man named Abraham and his family and that turned and evolved into the nation of Israel and today that is the church, a people who God has redeemed, a people who God has reconciled. Verse 12 of Colossians says, we are a people who have been qualified to to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, which means that we are people who were disqualified In every way, we have disqualified ourselves to share in that inheritance, and yet God has qualified us. Jesus, in his life and death and resurrection, has qualified us to share in this inheritance, to be brought into the family. Verse 13 and 14 says that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, that we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, which means we have forgiveness of sins. This is what has been accomplished for us in Jesus, that God is drawing us out of darkness that we might live as people who shine a light on the goodness and the glory of Jesus. He's invited us to play, given us a part to play in the work that he's doing in the world. So walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is not, hey, go earn it. It's, hey, go live like this is true about you. You're loved by God in Christ. Go live like this is true about you. This is what Paul's getting at. Go live in the light. Go live your life in such a distinct way that you would shine a light on who God is, that you would proclaim the excellencies of him. 1 Peter 2, 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So here's what I want you to grab onto in all of this. God isn't after a transactional relationship with you. He's not, if you do your part, then I will do mine. It's not, if you do the right things enough, then I won't send you to hell. This is not what God is doing. The invitation is not transactional, it's about relationship. This means, guys, that God cares about all of you. He doesn't just care about your performance, he cares about your heart. He doesn't just want you to know that he loves you. He wants that thought I am loved by God in Jesus Christ. He wants that thought to work its way down into the nooks and the crannies of our life such that it shapes everything we do. 
God loves me changes everything about the way I live my life. Even my desires change because now I want to please the Father because he has placed on me his unconditional love. He has planted you firmly in his son Jesus where you are forever secure. He wants you to live your life from that place of belonging and love and joy. This is the mission of God's people, to live set apart distinct lives. This is what Paul means when he says, hey, go walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So let's talk about how we do that. And really, I just wanna talk about one aspect of it that I think we miss a lot, right, like my son. He gets almost the whole thing, but he misses such a crucial part that it changes the whole song. And so if you were to ask this question to yourself or in a community group or with a group of friends, and you were to say, hey, what is it that keeps me from walking worthy? Like if you just sort of toss that around in your mind, just start thinking through, just try to make a list in your mind right now. What is it that keeps you from walking worthy, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? If you were to do that, my guess is that you would spend a lot of time, it would be a long list before you got to what I have in mind, if you even got there at all. Because I think that, I'll just tell you what it is. One of the primary things that keeps us from walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is not our unwillingness to, to work the way God wants us to. It is our unwillingness to rest the way God wants us to. So before you turn me off, hear me out. Ask almost anyone, how are you doing? What are they gonna say? I guarantee you, eight, nine times out of 10, it will be some version of I'm doing good, but life is busy, right? I'm okay, but life is busy right now. Or even if they're honest enough to say, hey man, we're struggling a little bit, life is what? Busy, right? This is the world that we live in. It's the air that we breathe. No, it, everyone's busy. No matter what the life stage, middle school and high school students are now busy. College students, young adults, you're busy. Parents with young children, you're busy. Can I get an amen right there, okay? Parents with older children, you are busy. Empty nesters, everyone is busy. And on top of that, even when we're not busy, we're surrounded by noise such that we are always connected. There's always an email to check. Always a text for you to reply to, Netflix to watch, or social media for you to consume. We are perpetually busy and constantly connected. We're always tired. Everyone's tired, but why is it that when we lay down at night, we can't even fall to sleep? We can't give into it because our minds can't stop being busy. And to make it worse, what oftentimes happens in our constant connection is that we miss the things that really matter in our life. We do this without even realizing it. What is the first thing most of us do when you wake up? You look at a clock, right? What time is it? Subconsciously, what we're saying is, where do I need to be? What do I need to do? What do I need to get ready, right? And the result is that we are rarely ever present where we are. Have you ever been in a room or at a table with a group of friends, a group of people you actually like, and you look up from your phone to realize everyone else is on their phone, perpetually connected, constantly distracted? What about this? This is going to just put my life out on display for you. Have you ever, like me, grown agitated or annoyed with your kids or even your spouse because they interrupt you from checking something on your phone that in the end doesn't really matter. Yes. 
Here's the thing, we might say we wish it were different, but if we're honest, we like the busy because the constant distraction helps us avoid what we're feeling at a heart level. It keeps us shallow. This is why when someone asks you how you're doing, you can't just say I'm good, you have to also ask or add I'm busy because it avoids people from digging into what you're feeling and you say, well, what makes you busy, right? We try to keep it at a surface level. And the reason why I think our unwillingness to rest from our work is preventing us from walking worthy more than almost anything else in the world is because this problem goes entirely unchecked. When's the last time someone said, hey man, you need to take a break. You need to disconnect. When it comes to walking worthy, I think our busyness is functioning as crutches for us that are preventing us from realizing how spiritually broken our legs are. We stay busy so we don't have to tap in to realize how, what's malfunctioning inside of us. We just gotta keep going. Just keep going. There's a a pastor and a professor named A.J. Swoboda in the Pacific Northwest and he wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath, the power of rest in a nonstop world. And I don't know that we would agree with him on everything theologically, but he is spot on in this book. And this is a long quote, but I think it's worth our time. It should be on the screen. It says this. Our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than ever before in history, And yet, with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity and progress and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, and ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's words, is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. He says technological compulsivity. Every quiet moment in your life, you can't sit still in it because you have to check your phone. It's a compulsion. We have to do it. And he says, increasingly so, our bodies wear ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our thirst for the life of God. We have become the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. This is the world we live in, is it not? And so with all that in mind, let me ask you this. How are you? Right? I know you're busy. How are you doing? How are you doing managing it all? And this is where Matthew chapter 11 comes in. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there if you'd like. For context, Jesus is having a conversation with a group of folks who had made religion their vocation. They had memorized their Bible. They had become experts in following the rules, so much so that they had become arrogant about it. They found pride in how religious they were. And Jesus says this in earshot of them, Matthew 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus gives an invitation and then he gives a promise. The invitation is come to me and the promise is I will give you rest. This isn't a new idea for the people of God. The idea of work and rest go hand in hand and it is a distinctly Christian idea. There is no other religion that places value on your work and yet inherently weaves rest into it. Whatever your work is, if you work in an office or you work in your truck or you're a salesperson or you're a student or you're a stay-at-home mom or whatever it is you do, whatever your work is, God, the scriptures place value on that, that you have a purpose in this world, that you have been set apart to shine a light on the goodness and the glory of God and yet he weaves rest into it. In the old covenant, this rest was referred to as Sabbath. That's a word that means to cease from your work, means to rest. It was a part of the Ten Commandments. It was a part of Jewish law. And so these men that Jesus was talking to were an expert with this law, but they were missing the point. The law wasn't given for us as a list of rules to follow or else. It's a description of what the set-apart life looks like. This pattern of work and rest is something as old as creation. Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. God, every day he works, and then what does he do? He rests from his creation every single day. Six days he follows this pattern, work, rest, work, rest, work, rest. And then on the seventh day, he takes it completely off in order to rest. And this is interesting because God doesn't get tired. And the point is he's modeling for humanity the pattern, this is how life works best. His declaration to his people in the Old Testament to keep the Sabbath isn't follow the rules or else. It's this is the rhythm of life that will shine a light on who I am. This is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so for us today, we're not obligated to the Old Testament law. We have no moral obligation the way that they did to keep the Sabbath. And yet, this pattern as old as creation, before sin entered the world, is one God says, this is the way life works the best. In Isaiah 58, God says to his people through the prophet Isaiah, if you keep my Sabbath, which just means you take a day off to rest, if you take a day off to rest from your work, he says this, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. So if your life feels like it's floundering, if you feel like the wheels are about to fall off, I would would ask myself the question, when's the last time you took a day off to rest? God says this is the pattern that will make you ride on the heights of the earth. And here's the thing, I'm not trying to add more to your plate because I know right now what you're thinking is, where am I gonna find the time? It's a culture we live in, I'm so busy. When will I find the time to take a day off? I know what you're thinking. But like we said before, the way we live is supposed to shine a light on the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And I promise you, that is not happening in your life if you are stressed and anxious all the time. That most Christians are just as stressed and anxious as the world around them, but probably even more so because not only are we doing all the things they're doing, we're also trying to follow God's rules and we're missing the point. Before we talk about where to find this rest, we need to know what we're looking for, because rest is different than relaxing. We've all had days where you've done nothing, but you felt no more rested because of it. We've all come back from vacation, again, or in this case, evacuation, and you feel worse, because now you're behind. 
Yeah? So what do we do? Where do we go to find rest? And Jesus tells us. He says, if you want rest, you come to me. Which means that authentic rest is only found in Jesus. And if we want freedom from the nonstop pace of the world that we live in, we need to make it a habit and a pattern of going to him. And he's invited us to come. There are a number of things in your world that every single day will call to you, come to me and I'll give you rest. Some of those are good and some of those are not so good, but the fact of the matter, rest can only be found in him. And so you need to identify in your life, where do I run for rest? When you feel uneasy in your soul, when you feel agitated or annoyed at the circumstances of your life and you, that thought pops in your head that says, I can't do this anymore. It's a sign that you're tired. It's a sign that you're weary. Where do you run in that moment? Maybe it's harder into your work. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's Netflix. Maybe it's a drink or pornography. I don't know. Let me just encourage you with what we said before. God the Father is pleased in you. You can't do anything to change this side of the scale. Paul just says, live like it's true about you. On your best day and on your worst, when God looks at you, he isn't disappointed. This means, guys, he will never turn away from you, and he will never turn you away from him. When you feel that inside of you, go to Jesus. You need rest. And it's easy to think that that invitation doesn't count for us, either because we've gone too far or we've done too much, but look at who Jesus invites to himself because he doesn't invite everyone. What's he say? Come to me, all who, what, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Other translations say weary and burdened. This is who Jesus invites to come, people who are tired, people who are exhausted in their work feeling like you are barely hanging on. I can't do this anymore. <coughs> Jesus says, come to me. Remember who he's talking to, right? This group of religious folks who felt like they were strong. People who felt like, man, I got this. I think oftentimes the Pharisees get a bad rap because it seems like, or people will say, hey, Jesus is trying to exclude them, when in reality he's not trying to exclude them, he's trying to reveal to them how fragile they actually are. You don't got this. And so maybe you're in the room this morning and you're going, I don't feel tired, I don't feel weary. Well, first of all, praise God. That in this moment, if you can say that, that you, God has made you feel strong, I can assure you that is not the case for everyone in the room. But think about how fragile that is. How quickly can it go away? One cold, you're done. One sickness, even worse than that. A phone call can change everything in our lives. And the point is, Jesus is, is trying to show us that we don't need to rest just when we need it. This is the pattern that makes life works best. This is such an American idea that we rest when we finished our work. We rest or we go on vacation after we've worked enough. I'm gonna work enough, I'm gonna store up enough vacation time and then I'm going to go rest. We work hard during the week so that we can take the weekend off. So we work to rest rather than the biblical idea that we see of working from rest. 
That's the rhythm God has given us, that Sabbath is intended to be the first day of the week because it's the same idea as tithing. We don't give, we, or we give to God first, we don't give him if there's anything left, if we haven't already spent it all. But this is the account that most of us keep when it comes to work and rest, that we work hard, work hard, maybe one day, maybe in the next season life will slow down, I'm gonna tell you it's not. God says, if you want rest, you come to me. And in that, when we give of him first, we're saying to God, I trust you. Open-handed with my life, with my financial resources, with my energy, with my affection, I'm going to give to you first, which says to ourselves, says to the world around us, and says to God, I trust you with my life that you know what you're doing and that you will multiply the rest of my efforts throughout the week, I trust you. So how do we come to him? Let me give you two things quickly in Matthew chapter 11. Right before this, in verse 25, Jesus says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's sovereign, he's in control, he's trustworthy, that you have hidden these things from who? From the wise and understanding, from the people who think they have it under control, and you have revealed to them to little children. And in that, God is teaching us how we come to him. Not like we have it figured out, but we come to him like children, and we come like little children. If you have little children, how do they come to you? All the time. (laughs) They come with little things, they come with big things, they come when they don't have anything at all. My wife cannot even walk out of the room before my sons, both of them now, are like, mommy? Where's mommy, right? They can feel it in their, in their, just in their souls. Oh, she's gone. The second Zeke wakes up, he doesn't look at a clock or think about where he needs to be or what he needs to do. His first thought is, where's mommy? Jesus says, come to me like that. That can get annoying to us. God is never annoyed with us. He says, come to me like this, like little children. And then look at verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So the rest we get from Jesus is not just relaxing, it's not just physical rest, it is a rest of the soul. And the idea that Jesus reminds us who we are in light of who he is, and it changes everything. When we go rest in him, he says, this is who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done for you. We go to him, we get a rest of soul, and that changes everything. He says, take my yoke and learn from me. How do we typically learn things? All at once or little by little? Learning to rest from Jesus is a a process. Right, in the same way, finding rest will be a process for us. If we're gonna learn from him, we need to pay attention to him. It's that simple. How do we find rest in Jesus? Spend time unplugged, disconnected, where all you're doing is listening and responding to him. As we said before, that comes from the word. The primary way God speaks to us is through the pages of scripture. You need to be reading your Bible, not to check a box on your list of things that you're supposed to do that you've piled on top of yourself to create more busy. You need a moment where the words open and your heart and your mind and your ears are open to God and you're saying, what do you have for me? Will you please remind me that I am loved by you, not because of what I bring to the table? Do we not need that in our lives? 
He says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a device that was placed on an ox in order to basically attach them to the plow. Which is interesting that Jesus would use an illustration about work to teach us about rest. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, which is even more confusing because Jesus' burden was the cross. Not easy, not light. On the cross, the weight of God's wrath for sin was poured out completely on Jesus. But his point is, before you go work yourself to death trying to prove to the world and prove to yourself and prove to me that you matter, you attach yourself to me. Yoke yourself to me and remember you're accepted. You belong, you're loved, come to me, draw near to me, hide yourself in the rock of ages, which means that rest we find in Jesus is to remember that we are not what we do, we are who he says we are. Friends, that's the point of the Sabbath. You take a day to stop your work, not because you don't have anything you could be doing, of course you do. You do it because God says you need a day where you don't do and you just are to rest, to remember that we are not the sum total of what we do in our lives. And that fails in comparison to who he says we are. We're in Jesus. We live our lives walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So when you read the Bible in regards to rest and Sabbath, you get the sense that God isn't saying, hey, when you get the time, you should rest some. Right? That's not what he's saying. Because without it, we're running ourselves into the ground. And I'm gonna set you free in this statement. I hope you believe me. Taking an afternoon to rest is not being unproductive. Taking an afternoon or a day to rest, to watch a movie, to be with your family, to go on a walk, not to burn calories, but just to go on a walk, to be outside, to become an expert in the goodness and the grace of God to you. Taking a day for those things is not you being lazy. It is you learning to be faithful from Jesus. So I could keep going on and on. I think what would be best is just to simply ask you this, because if you don't plan it, you're never gonna do it. When are you gonna do this? Life isn't slowing down. When are you gonna take time to rest? Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. When are you ever still enough to actually feel what's going on underneath the surface of your heart. Because I promise you what prompted this in my heart is my own life. What keeps me from walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is that I just keep going, man. Busy, looking faithful, no one's ever gonna call me out on it, but all the while I'm crutching along and my spiritual legs are broken and Jesus invites us Come to me, and I will give you rest. Let's go to him now. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this reminder. I thank you that it's true to say that we are not what we do, but we are who you say we are. Would you help us to believe that? Give us the courage to trust you with our time. A courage to trust you with everything you've given us, knowing that you know what's best.
I pray now for the folks in the room who said, yeah, not me. I got too much to do. Would you reveal to them how needy they are, how fragile they are in every moment of every day? God, we need you. We pray that you would be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.